Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Finding Our Learning Zone The Middle Way Day to Day by Lama Adam Berner. While it is important for us to know our potential for enlightenment, practicing the Dharma properly must also include knowing our seeming limitations. Finding the middle way between the two, we are able to safely and effectively traverse the path to awakening. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Texum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. Welcome to the uh, 11.30 Dharma Talks at Columbus KTC. Columbus KTC in your own home, on your own computer. Uh, how convenient could it get, you know? So um, thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. Uh, we are all so busy and there's so many choices of things we can do. So um, I, I want you to know that I really value um, your being here today to spend some time and, and listen to what, um, what I have to share today. So the, the first thing I like to say when we do these talks um, is just a reminder that uh, you're very lucky. Uh, we are very lucky to have any uh, kind of inclination towards virtue, towards doing uh, things to help ourselves and to benefit others. And it's worth remembering that. It's worth reminding ourselves of that. When we do things that uh, benefit ourselves and benefit others, it's good to rejoice in those things because um, that reinforces positive habits. And it's positive habits that gave us this inclination for virtue in the first place. So if we want to continue to uh, enjoy the benefits uh, of virtuous activity and beneficial things, we need to reinforce those good habits. So it's one of the best ways of doing that is rejoicing in good things and rejoicing in virtue and rejoicing in um, practicing the Dharma. So um, that's really important. The other thing to know is that uh, all of this is hopefully in service of your, your practice of the teachings. And that means both your practice on the cushion uh, but almost uh, equally important is your practice off the cushion because these teachings and the, the, the Buddhist path, uh, the path of Dharma, is uh, an experiential path. It's, uh, it's something that we can talk about and learn about, but it, it's really ultimately experienced and realization is experienced, not learned. The Tibetan word for uh, that we frequently translate as uh, meditation is gom and that uh, the meaning of gom is actually much closer to like uh, familiarize or get to know better. So when we say meditate, uh, when we translate gom as meditate, we're really talking about getting to know our mind better. And uh, the idea being that like who we really are and what we really are and the boundless potential that we have frequently goes unrecognized by us. And so we need to get to know it better. And as we become more familiar with our minds, uh, that's how we begin to reveal that potential. 
So studying the Dharma, studying the teachings of the Buddha and other enlightened masters can help us get a conceptual idea of our true nature. But realizing that nature happens only through experience, through um, applying these teachings and living them beyond concepts, experience. So the incredibly skillful means that help us cultivate experience, which we're so fortunate to be in contact with, um, our meditation, really, like that's the, the, the best, that's the reason we meditate is to cultivate these experiences. And so the best way to familiarize, particularly in a teaching like this, where we're, we are going to rely on concepts for the next uh, roughly an hour. So the best way to do that right now would be to listen. So there's this uh, setup called the, the three trainings. And uh, they are listening, contemplation, and meditation. So in a teaching, the best thing to do is to listen. That's that's the most beneficial way that uh, you can um, benefit from this, this uh, session. So listening would be uh, being open to new information. And that means just kind of listening, being open, kind of what it sounds like, you know, accepting. And that's important now. But then the next step, contemplation, is important afterwards. So that you'll get the most out of the session is afterwards you think about it, you know, and you test it and you question it. And the reason this is an important distinction is because I think our normal habit is to try to listen and contemplate at the same time, you know, which means we're not fully listening and we're not fully contemplating. So the best thing to do is kind of just to be open. Even if you don't agree with things I'm saying, or you doubt them, that's fine, you know, like, um, but you'll have time to think about it later, you know, and you'll get the most out of it if we Listen now, contemplate later. And then the third part being the meditation, you know, simply um, doing the practices that, that cultivate this um, experience. So uh, let's give it a shot real quick. So, so I just said listening is a great thing to do. And then we contemplate and then we meditate. So um, let's take a second to contemplate that. Makes some sense to me. Hopefully you too. And then let's uh, just take a couple of minutes and place our attention on the breath and we'll meditate for a second. And then we'll do the refuge prayer and begin. So let's just take just a, a minute or so and just rest our attention on the breath. And if our attention wanders, just bring it back to the breath and we'll just kind of be here for a minute. Okay, thank you. So uh, I'm going to put the refuge prayer up on the screen. 
get my name off of the screen. And let's say the refuge prayer three times in English. Until I reach enlightenment, I take refuge in all the Buddhas and in the Dharma and in the Noble Sangha. By the merit of accomplishing the six perfections, may I achieve Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. Until I reach enlightenment, I take refuge in all the Buddhas and in the Dharma and in the Noble Sangha. By the merit of accomplishing the six perfections, may I achieve Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. Until I reach enlightenment, I take refuge in all the Buddhas and in the Dharma and all the Noble Sangha. By the merit of accomplishing the six perfections, may I achieve Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. And then I'll say my own prayer briefly. Paudin Sawelama Rimboje Dagijiwa Bede Denjula Kadrin Chimbo Gone Jesunde Kusun Toginu Drup Saldu So Okay, thank you. So um so today's talk was titled uh, Finding Our Learning Zone, Middle Way Day to Day. So we were just talking about the, the traditional description of the middle way. Now, um, to give some background again on, uh, like I said, this this talk didn't end up where I thought it would. Um, where this actually, where they got the, I got the inspiration for this was I was looking into um, a book called Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness. Uh, this is it. It's by uh, an author named uh, David Trelevin. Trelevin. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. Um, the idea being here uh, that I wanted to look into uh, potential uh, negative effects of meditation. And this is something that uh, is actually getting a good bit of research now. And uh, mindfulness uh, meditation, the basic meditation that we learn, um, is, uh, has been taught for you know, millennia now. And uh, it's been around for a long time. And, uh, but it, it, I don't know that it's ever taken into account situations of, of like trauma, people who are surviving trauma. And trauma is uh, a lot more common than we might realize. Like I, I've seen figures that like 90% of the, the global population will experience a trauma at some point in their life. And um, so many, many, many of us have, you know, and um, it's not necessarily the case then that you carry that forever. It, it becomes an issue of, of can you integrate that experience into your life, you know? And at any given time, um, I've, I've seen that like maybe one in 10 people have unintegrated traumas, you know, that they're going through. So if uh, so, I mean, it's almost certain that someone who is listening to or seeing this talk uh, at some point uh, will be going through that type of situation. And uh, as people who practice meditation and particularly for people who teach meditation, this is something really important to think about because um the normal instruction for uh, mindfulness, shamatha meditation, our, our foundational meditation, is to uh, just sit, like kind of like we did at the beginning, place the attention on the breath. Um, and then when we notice thinking, we bring our attention back to the breath. And we just kind of keep at that, you know, and sometimes our mind's busy and sometimes our mind's a little foggy and, and that's okay. And that's all safe for us, generally speaking. But sometimes if we have unintegrated traumas, um, the thoughts that come up and, and placing ourselves in that, uh, that format of practice can actually do more damage than good and can, can serve to re-traumatize people. So 
I want to be clear that um, I'm not giving a talk on psychology today. And, and um, this is something that I do want to talk about more and look into. I want to look at it in terms of, because what I realized as I was going through this book and, and, you know, full disclosure, I started this book, read about halfway through it, put it down for like a couple of months, came back, um, realized that I was probably not going to do the talk about this book. But what I really wanted to do is I realized as I'm looking at the modifications that are there for people in this situation, that they are like existing practices we have in the Karmakadu lineage. So that's one thing I want to look at later on is how these modifications actually uh, track with, with Kagyu practices so that we can be aware of this, uh, you know, be trauma sensitive, but also, you know, use these practices that already exist within our lineage. So that's something I want to take a look at. So this is not a talk about psychology, and this is not a talk um, specifically about what to do if you are uh, surviving a trauma. It's like it is important if you if you are finding yourself dysregulated, you know, like moving between um, hyper arousal or, or um, dullness, you know, like uh, dissociation, things like that. Those, those type of things. It's important to talk to a, a clinician about that stuff, you know. Um, because our frequent instruction about just keep at it and it will work, you know, and this is a workout for you, is true for most people who aren't, you know, but people who are not in that situation of uh, dealing with an unintegrated trauma. So this talk is is more for the general, uh, the, the genuine, uh, I'm sorry, not the genuine, the general population. So, uh, but it relates to this. And, and what I got from the, what really kind of spurred what this talk is now, this like finding the middle way thing, was this concept of finding a window of tolerance. And um, that window of tolerance in, in the trauma-sensitive mindfulness uh, field has to do with uh, finding our space between um, that hyper-arousal and hypo-arousal and um, finding that space where we're safe, you know, where it's safe for us to do this practice, where we're not... Uh, uh, straying into uh, kind of dangerous territory for us. Now, it for um, and actually, I want to read real quick his uh, this the definition in here of hypo uh, and hyper uh, arousal because I think it's gonna I think it tracks pretty interestingly with with some uh, traditional teachings. So, just to give some perspective on this window of uh, tolerance and where it comes from here in the. Uh, this trauma-sensitive mindfulness field. He says, when we're hyper-aroused, there's too much energy in the system. We can be plagued by intrusive thoughts, are anxious and easily overwhelmed, and can find it hard to relax or focus. Um, then he says, when hypo-aroused, we experience a lack of energy that leads to an absence of sensation, a lack of concentration, and a sense of immobility. Uh, people report feeling passive, disinterested, unmotivated, and numb. And then, um, so for those working to integrate traumas, uh, starting to be aware when we go into those states of hyperarousal and hypoarousal, that just the awareness, the familiarity with that uh, can be a very empowering thing. And it can help them to begin to self-monitor and, and serve to normalize their experience. Now, for most of us, it may not be dangerous um, if we're feeling uh, one or other of those extremes. And, and what I'd like to do is draw a little parallel between um, those descriptions and, and the, the primary defects in shamatha, as they're described in Kemba Carter Rinpoche's book, Excellent, in the beginning. And he describes them as uh, torpor and excitement. And uh, 
torpor occurs in meditation when you find that your body starts to feel weak, as if you could not even move if you wanted to. Your mind also starts to feel unclear without any kind of perky clarity. You might actually fall asleep at this point, but even if you do not fall asleep, your mind is dull. You may not be particularly disturbed by thoughts, and your mind may be fairly stable, but it is stable in a dull, sleepy way. As long as you remain in this state of torpor, you will not receive any benefit from shamatha practice. The second defect is excitement. This can manifest as the arising of thoughts related to the kleshas, such as attachment or anger, or it can be some kind of attraction or irritation about the external environment. In either case, the problem with excitement is that it prevents you from settling your mind on the chosen object or technique. Often this happens in the following way. A mental affliction arises which causes you to direct your attention to an external object. You become so involved with that object or sense perception that you cannot bring yourself back to the technique, even when you recognize that you have become distracted. So um, you can see there's a, a similarity to these things. Um, and depending on where we're coming from um, and where our, our personal situation is, um, those extremes, you know, uh, if, if, if we're, we're dealing with an integrated, uh, unintegrated trauma, those situations can be uh, actually be damaging. But even if we're not, uh, those they're not productive and they're situations that we need to be aware of uh, because we need to correct them. We need to get back to that, uh, that, that window where, where we're actually benefiting from the practice. So uh, the antidotes that Rinpoche gave for those defects in the practice of shamatha um, are uh, for torpor uh, or dullness to begin to sort of tighten up, like literally physically tighten up a bit and to bring our vision up, you know, and sort of have this feeling of everything coming up. And uh, that would be the antidote uh, to work with when we find ourselves in a situation of torpor. Um, that word just sounds so funny, doesn't it? I, I got to think of a better, see if there's a better synonym for that word, torpor. Um, and then excitement is the opposite of that. And so in excitement, what we do is we bring everything downwards. So we bring the gaze lower. We bend, maybe bend down a little bit even, have the sense of everything coming down. And in a, in a very practical way, uh, like for me, when I'm, when I'm practicing, like it, it Sometimes it's really just like a little adjustment of the gaze, you know, just slightly lower, you know, from where I'm looking in front of me. And, and it can make a big difference. You know, uh, you can you can uh, if you need it, you can do more. You know, you might just move your gaze a little bit and that's not enough. And then you see you may tighten yourself up a little bit and then you may raise your gaze a little more. So you can do this in degrees, you know, but those would be the, the antidotes for those situations. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, meditation actually translates as familiarizing. And the first step is really just developing an awareness of, of when we become too excited or, or too dull and um, becoming familiar with what those states feel like for us and, and then being able to label them as such. Likewise, um, we become familiar with our window of tolerance where we're, um, where we're actually practicing safely and effectively. Then this is a, a necessary prerequisite to applying any of the antidotes that we talked about to these extremes. If we don't know that we're out of our window, uh, we won't know when to apply the antidote. So we have to familiarize ourselves with our window of tolerance. 
And um, we have to remember that uh, that window can also change, you know, day to day and moment to moment. Some days uh, we may be a little grumpy. Some days we didn't maybe get enough sleep or drink enough water. And um, some days we may actually be in such a good mood that things that might normally distract us uh, don't. You know, they just roll off our backs. So maybe that window is larger some days too, not just smaller. <clears throat> and <clears throat> because we know that meditation means to familiarize, then this also applies to our post-meditation. And as I said earlier, uh, formal practice on the cushion practice is important, but off the cushion practice is equally important. And off the cushion practice, uh, you know, what we do throughout our day that's the bulk of, of our practice when you think about it, because most of us aren't spending the majority of our day formally practicing. So uh, I remember the first Dharma talk I ever heard, somebody used the analogy of uh, like painting a painting, you know, and if you spend 20 minutes in the morning, you know, painting the painting, what are you doing with the rest of the day? Are you uh, erasing what you, what you painted, you know, or are you working to preserve it or, 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 you know, still, add on to that painting, you know? So it's kind of like that with meditation. Is what we're doing during the day supporting our on the cushion practice or not? So um, as we said, meditation means to familiarize. Uh, so this applies to our post-meditation on the cushion and uh, off the cushion. So what we do throughout our day uh, matters. And this window of tolerance matters throughout our day too. You know, like we, this, these, uh, this awareness we can cultivate of whether we're feeling too excited to practice beneficially or feeling too dull to practice beneficially and, and trying to apply some kind of antidote is important off the cushion too. So we have to watch where our window is and it's good to know our window, um, where the middle is, you know, between um, excitement and torpor. And um, so now that's kind of a way uh, the reason we talked about that is because that's a way to know um, when we're in an effective state of practice, when we're practicing safely, you know, and that's essential, you know, otherwise, and this is a matter of safety, literally for some people, but, um, but for all of the, uh, certainly it, it's definitely a matter of, you know, not wasting time, you know, or, or hurting ourselves. So this is an important middle way to be aware of and to think about and to cultivate. And as I said a little bit earlier, too, it also normalizes our experience. It also normalizes the idea that we will move between these extremes, you know, and we will, you know, it, our experience is in motion. You know, we are a process. So uh, it's good to know that. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit here, too. So let's look at another uh, set of extremes and another perspective on the middle way. And this, uh, some of you will recognize this because we did a book study last uh, winter, I guess. Yeah, myself and Lama Mitchell from Mississippi did a book study on Pema Children's Welcoming the Unwelcome. And there's a chapter in that book called Beyond the Comfort Zone. And that's where I got the uh, Finding Our Learning Zone um, idea. And she begins this chapter by talking about refuge. And the idea of, of thinking about what it is that we actually take refuge in. Uh, people who are here and, and practicing Buddhism uh, will be familiar with the concept of refuge. But um, 
for those who aren't, what we're talking about here is where we go uh, for protection, to feel to feel comfortable, to feel safe. You know, like um, the most uh, we could think of an umbrella actually as a form of refuge from the rain. You know, if we don't want to get wet, we get an umbrella, and that's our refuge from the rain. But one of the prime practices uh, in Buddhism is is taking refuge, and this is more than just a prayer, like we said in the beginning. Um, it, it, the prayer part is important, you know, but the idea is that throughout our day, we're engaged in a practice of refuge taking, um, whether we know it or not. And so like a lot of things, you know, when we talk about enlightenment um, or awakening is another way to talk about that, uh, waking up, you know, we want to wake up to what we're doing, wake up to our habits, uh, wake up to uh what inertia we're putting into motion, you know, what we're, what we're feeding. There's that analogy about like, which wolf are you feeding? You know, like, is it the good one or the bad one? You know, so it's good to know, you know, what, what we're doing to, to be awake to that kind of stuff. So um, what is it that we're seeking refuge in? We say, we, you know, if, if we're Buddhist practitioners, we say we're seeking refuge in the three jewels, you know, as the Buddha, as the teacher, the Dharma as the teaching and, um, the Sangha is the community who can support us on that path. But is that really what we're doing throughout the whole of our day? I mean, we may do that in the morning when we do our three prostrations and open the shrine and things like that. But it's good to check in and figure out, you know, is this what we're doing the rest of the time? You know, where where are we actually seeking refuge? And to be aware when we are taking refuge in, in places that are not the three jewels. And... Um, she mentions a teacher who uh, recommends, uh, I'm not necessarily recommending this practice, but I, I guess I, I see the value in this. There's a teacher she just talks about who recommends when we do things like taking refuge in Netflix or our refrigerator or our uh, or a nap, you know, um, treating that like we would our, our, our actual refuge prayer in the three jewels and actually putting our palms together and saying, I take refuge in Netflix. You know, not because that's what we want to do, but because it's it's what we're doing, you know, and we, and and that's realistic look at it, you know. And I think, you know, probably since this talk is about the middle way that I'm not saying we can't have our comforts, you know, um, I'm just saying like we need to find the middle way between these two. And we need and in order to do that, we need to know the extremes. You know, we need to know when we're doing things you know, um, by the book, so to speak, you know, like uh, in a dharmic way, you know, without with non-attachment or when we're doing things based on attachment. So um, I want to get another graphic up here. And this is from Pema Chodron's book. And this is her diagram of uh, the learning zone. So this is what we're going to talk about here for a minute. And what we see is uh, in the middle here is the comfort zone. And so the comfort zone here is uh, what, where we go for comfort. What are the things we do to make us feel comfortable? Um, as we I mentioned some examples, maybe it's food, maybe it's Netflix, maybe it's reading, you know, like there's any number of things that make us feel safe and comfortable. So um, 
Yeah, morning caffeinated tea. For me, it's Grady's uh, cold brew. But uh, but yeah, I feel that. So it's good to know where our comfort zone is, what what it is we're most attracted to. Um, then in the the middle or the next circle out would be our learning zone. And this learning zone is where we stretch beyond our comfort zone. So she uses an example of like stinginess. So um, for instance, if, if we are kind of stingy and we, we uh, feel secure and comfortable by not sharing things, um, maybe we get into our learning zone by making a small donation to some charity, you know, or, or if somebody comes over and, you know, we have like a couple small Buddha statues or something and they see one they like and, you know, we have several of them, we give them one, you know, and it may not be completely comfortable for us to do that, but it, it pushes us into this learning zone. And so um, you basically make an effort to challenge yourself a little bit. Uh, in the learning zone. And then the, the outer zone here, she calls the excessive risk zone. And, um, and she says here, if you force yourself to be in this outer zone, you'll be too traumatized to learn anything. So this is like the deep end of the swimming pool when you don't know how to swim. And that's the excessive risk zone. And these zones are, are personal to all of us. We're, we're all different. You know, uh, what our, our comfort zone looks like is different for each of us. And the size of our comfort zone is different for each of us. Uh, what our learning zone is like is different for each of us. Our excessive risk zone is different for each of us. And again, um, like our window of tolerance, these zones can shift and change. So being aware and checking in um, with these things, with ourselves on these, these topics is important. So Keep this in your head. I'm going to take this off the screen. There's the uh, beyond the comfort zone diagram. We're going to be talking about the learning zone in particular. So um, the more we can step out of our comfort zone, this is what's kind of ironic. The more that we step out of our comfort zone, the more comfortable we become in life. Um, because as many of you may have noticed, the world is not designed for our perfect comfort 24-7. Although we tend to think it is, and we, when we're met with things that don't perfectly align with our comfort zone, we're shocked and offended, you know, and upset and hurt. And um, we think our day's gone down the toilet, you know? So I mean, that's kind of the way we approach the whole world is we know our comfort zone, but then when things don't fit it, it we're, we're like surprised, you know, we're shocked by this. So um, that's why it's important that we uh, try to, to get into this learning zone, because really, when we stay in that comfort zone all the time, the ironic thing is that it shrinks. That comfort zone gets smaller and smaller the more we stay in there, and we get more and more set in our ways. So um, Payment Children says, in the context of refuge, it's helpful to keep these zones in mind and to notice our orientation, where we're oriented. So sometimes we do need to, to be in our comfort zone. Sometimes we, we do need to get back into that comfort zone. And, um, and, and we need to honor that, she says. You know, when those times come and we're, we're thinking clearly about it, sometimes we need to get into our comfort zone. But um, 
many times when we think we need that comfort zone, we're really just kind of kidding ourselves. We don't, you know, and, and actually like we may actually benefit and, and come to even enjoy spending some time in that, that learning zone. So this is important because happiness and comfort uh, are temporary. And she uses the example of Shantideva's quote that happiness is like a dewdrop on a blade of grass. It's there, you know, you see it, it's gorgeous, and you know it's going to go. Um, so that's what our comfort is like. So when we try to cling to that comfort zone um, and think that it's permanent, it, it is inevitable that that, will, that attachment will cause us suffering. So love is, is a good example of this, she says, which is like the idea of the, um, having the, the honeymoon period. And then after that period of time, it's really kind of all learning zone, I think, for the most part, or at least a whole lot of learning zone, you know. So, um, so this idea of happiness disappearing shouldn't be depressing. Um, it should actually be something that that points us towards the way uh, out of suffering. And I want to read um, one of the paragraphs from this chapter. She says. Uh, the idea of happiness disappearing like a dewdrop could sound depressing, but Togme Zongpo's intention here is to point us to freedom. Oh, yeah, I said Shani Deva, but this is the uh, 37 practices with Bodhisattva, uh, Togme Zongpo. So to start again, the idea of happiness disappearing like a dewdrop could sound depressing, but Togme Zongpo's intention here is to point us to freedom. Clinging to things that are always changing is a comfort zone tactic. It's what keeps us in samsara, which is a Sanskrit word referring to the vicious cycle we're all trapped in because we continually resist reality. The only way to free ourselves from samsara is to awaken to the open-endedness of how things are. This requires venturing out into the learning zone where we will encounter fundamental groundlessness. Trungpa Rinpoche equates this state with the wide open space of our basic goodness. It is the fresh air of our deepest sanity. But because the space doesn't give us much to hang on to, we usually find it intimidating. This is when, in Trungpa Rinpoche's poetic description, we tend to, quote, hide ourselves in caves and jungles, unquote which is a way of saying we become very self-involved. We kindle a great fire of hatred, roil the river of lust, and wallow in the mud of laziness. Aggression, passion, and ignorance, what are known as the three poisons, are the result of not connecting with our basic goodness because we fear the groundless state. So how do we, um, cultivate this uh, learning zone. The, the way that Pima Children suggests um, is, is Tonglen, uh, the, the practice of taking and sending. Uh, on the cushion, uh, Tonglen really is learning zone stuff, you know, sitting down and breathing in suffering and discomfort and breathing out love and happiness. Um, that is a practice you know, uh, of working in our learning zone. 
what we do off the cushion when we encounter something that's outside of our comfort zone. Instead of avoiding it, we can try breathing it in. Uh, we don't want to get into our excessive risk zone. So we need to watch and make sure uh, that we're in our window of tolerance. And that's where that first idea, that window of tolerance becomes important because that is what can tell us um, when we've left the learning zone, you know, entered the excessive risk zone. Because we may notice that our attempts at learning uh, in the learning zone are actually causing a great deal of agitation or excitement, you know, or stress. Or maybe we're in the excessive risk zone and the way we're reacting to that is we're just kind of disconnecting and becoming apathetic and withdrawn. So the window of tolerance is a good way of knowing when uh, it's okay to stay in that, that comfort zone when we're there. And uh, so when we do this practice off the cushion, when we work with learning zone off the cushion, we can use something small, um, any small disappointment. And our day uh, is rife with those, right? Um, whether it's the, um, you know, having to wait in line somewhere longer than you hoped, or uh, you go to your fridge and one of your kids ate your favorite snack you were late, uh, saving for later. Um, there's all these little things that uh, tend to upset us, you know, or, or tend to uh, set us, you know, into uh, the three poisons of anger, um, attachment, or ignorance. So when we come across these little disappointments, that's our opportunity to work with the learning zone. And instead of fighting it off, you know, or trying to run away from it, we actually sit with that disappointment for a minute and we breathe it in. Um, and what Pima Children says about that is, is just by choosing to do Tonglen in these situations, instead of losing heart or acting out, you're stepping out of your comfort zone. You're beginning to make friends with your own pain and to develop empathy uh, with the human condition. Even though you're working with a relatively minor suffering, you're building the strength and capacity to handle something greater. If you keep doing this, you'll find that in great adversity, that strength will be available to you. So we have to train, you know, we have to work on this stuff. We have to do the exercises that will put in place the skills that we need in larger, more dramatic situations, you know? <clears throat> so thinking of the learning zone um, in terms of a general approach to Dharma, it, it benefits us to be familiar with where our learning zone is at any given point in time because we may be becoming too attached. And, um, and remember, attachment is the cause of suffering, according to the Buddha. The four, Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths. Uh, this is kind of an interesting thing, right? The Buddha discovered the middle way, and then his first teaching was the Four Noble Truths. And, and so he taught that uh, suffering is a part of life, suffering in this case being like discontentment, dissatisfaction. Um, and then he taught that uh, suffering has a cause and the cause of suffering is attachment. And, um, <laughs> and then uh, I can't, thank you uh, for asking though. That would be fun. Um, I don't have actually a uh, good question about the base was just 
given and uh, I uh, rarely play it and I only have headphones for it. I don't even have an amp anymore. So I'm kind of not legit with the bass anymore. But um, so the Buddha taught the, the truth of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. That suffering has a cause and that cause is attachment. And um, that uh, if the attachment, uh, the cause of suffering is removed, we can achieve the cessation of suffering. And that there is a, a path to achieve the cessation of suffering. So um, attachment can be to stuff, you know, but it also can be to extremes. You know, it can be attachment to one end of this the spectrum. Um, and so it's important to know this. Uh, um, it's important to know uh, where our learning zone is because we may be straying to one of the extremes. We may be straying, uh, straying to the comfort zone or we may be straying to the uh, extreme risk zone. And what that means, I think sometimes is, for instance, uh, maybe we're feeling like, I think this is maybe the most common, is we think we're falling short of what a Buddha should be like, you know, or we're falling short of what we've heard the perfect practice of Dharma is. We behaved in a way that's not ideal. It's not the way we wanted to behave. And we're hard on ourselves because of it, you know. Um, or maybe we uh, have found that we can't live up to those things that we we tend to fail. And so maybe we go to this extreme of, well, I just, you know, this stuff doesn't matter. You know, I'm just going to do what I want. And I, I believe in the Buddha and that's great, you know, but, um, you know, I, I can't keep up with all these rules. And, and so you give them up altogether and then you've strayed into the comfort zone. So uh, in, in general, knowing our learning zone is important because it will allow us to be compassionate to ourselves. Um, and this is where I want to bring it back around to the life of the Buddha, you know, the uh, ideas of indulgence and renunciation, that classic formulation of the middle way. It, it's common for us to go through periods of generating like uh, too much attachment to our own comfort or too much attachment to like overly rigid practice. And our Dharma practice should take place in the learning zone. We need to know uh, when we're taking things too easy or when we're taking them too hard. Um, as noble as the four truths are, um, if we're attached to them, I mean, how ironic, right? <laughs> that uh, knowing the four noble truths and that uh, suffering is the cause of attachment, you know, we can also become attached to the four noble truths. Um, so if we're being too hard on ourselves, we're being too lazy, uh, or not perfectly living up to the ideals of conduct, uh, not being quote unquote, good Buddhist, we may be keeping ourselves in the excessive risk zone, you know, and we're not benefiting ourselves or others. Uh, so rather than continue to push ourselves beyond our abilities and in fact, cause more damage than good, it may actually be time to recognize that we need to find the middle again. That even though our intentions are good and the Dharma is good um, and we're strong and motivated people, until we're fully enlightened, um, we're always going to have uh, our own limitations. And the Bodhisattva vow that many of us have taken does not say, I will behave uh, exactly like a Bodhisattva henceforth and forevermore. What it says is just as Buddhas of the past gave rise to the mind of awakening and trained gradually in the stages of the training of a Bodhisattva, 
in the same way, for the benefit of beings, I too will generate this mind of awakening and will train in the proper stages in the trainings of a bodhisattva. So this is important to remember because while, while it is important for us to know our potential, to be familiar with uh, enlightenment, awakening, practicing the Dharma properly must also include familiarizing ourselves with our seeming limitations and um, finding the middle way between uh, perfect Buddhahood and where we are right now, we're able to safely and effectively um, learn to traverse the path towards awakening. So I hope that there were some useful things in this talk for you today. Uh, again, thank you for your time. Uh, if there's any questions, we have uh, like eight minutes left. So um, I'm happy to, to take an attempt at, at any questions. If not, totally sit for a little while. I'm not seeing anything, so um, I guess I'll say uh, we are getting closer and closer to opening the center, and uh, or at least to having, I should say, having the building. And uh, we still have uh, quite a bit to do. Uh, some uh, there's funds still to be raised. So if you are so moved, uh, I've put the uh, link to donate to support the rebuilding of KTC here in the bottom of the screen. And um, so feel free to, uh, to make a donation if you'd like. And um, thank you all. Uh, my email, I'll put it in the chat. I'm adam at columbusktc.org. I'm glad this was helpful for you guys. Thank you very much. So uh, I'll say, that uh, I try my best to uh, stick to what I've um, what I've learned from my teachers, and um, uh, getting into the psychology stuff was was definitely a little scary. Uh, that's why I wanted to try to bring it into our tradition and and relate it to things that that we talk about. Um, so I want to say that uh, if there's anything today that confused anyone or was incorrect. Um, that is my own error. Um, I'm just doing my best to try to share these, these incredible teachings that I'm so lucky to have come into contact with. So I confess any errors uh, in this presentation today, and I, I hope that, um, that I've given everyone something useful. And if something wasn't useful or uh, rubbed you the wrong way, leave it behind. So um, I rejoice in all the great works of our teachers. I hope that they remain and continue to teach the Dharma. Um, and um, Thank you all for being here. Good luck with your practice. Um, let's dedicate the merit of this session to the benefit of all sentient beings. Uh, we pray that all beings are able to remain in their window of tolerance, to know their window of tolerance so they can do so. Uh, and may we all uh, stay in that learning zone as much as possible, because that's where we make our real progress. So we dedicate this merit 
for the benefit of all sentient beings. All right, thank you everybody. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.